The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. From Spirituality and Health magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health podcast. Our guest today is Rebecca Martinez, founder and executive director of Alma Institute, a nonprofit educational institution equipping students from marginalized communities to become legal psychedelic facilitators. She served as an advisor to the National Psychedelics Association, the American Psychedelic Practitioners Association, and the Plant Medicine Healing Alliance. Her new book, Whole Medicine, a guide to ethics and harm reduction for psychedelic therapy and plant medicine communities is featured in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Rebecca Martinez, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you. The book was really fascinating. I need to let everybody know that I have absolutely no experience with psychedelics, plant-based medicine. Well, I mean, I take aspirin. I guess that comes from a plant, but really this is new to me, but I'm fascinated by it. So this is, you know, our, ours is not a long podcast and I don't want to waste time before getting into what's really on my mind with your book. So let me just jump right in and ask you some off the wall question to see where it goes. You sort of open the book with an identity statement, a statement of self-identity. I'm just going to quote your sentence. You say, I am a queer, cisgender, able-bodied, light-skinned Chicana. So my question is, in your experience with plant-based medicine, is the consciousness you explore, when you explore the mind beyond ego, is that consciousness queer, cisgender, able-bodied, light-skinned Chiquina? Or is it free from all these labels and ego identities? Well, I love this question. And we did just dive right in the deep end. So, I mean, to start, I would say that this is actually one of the deepest questions that are sort of being explored in the field of psychedelic therapy and psychedelic healing more generally. Specifically because it used to be this idea of ego transcendence or what is often referred to as ego death as a sort of universal experience that is ex- experienced the same way no matter who you are. And in recent years, not only psychedelic researchers, but community members from a whole variety of lived experience have started to push back on that idea a little bit, uh, particularly because we've seen that the concept of ego death is one that is not just the beneficial side of dissolution of oneself. It also can, in many cases, come back stronger when you come back to what we call like the default reality or consensus reality. So more and more, what I've experienced and what people in, in my communities of practice have experienced is that the identities that we live with and the bodies we were born into and the context we were born into actually really do influence and shape our experience of psychedelic medicines and of altered states and other realms. And so one of the reasons that I opened with that is because before we can dive into this whole amazing conversation about consciousness, I need to sort of orient people to who are they speaking with? 
what what vantage point am I coming from? What identities or lived experiences might they share or not share with me? So that we have an orientation to the conversation. And that was my way of not only acknowledging where I'm coming from, but also to sort of upfront just name my own limitations, name my own privileges, name my own areas that I may have blind spots and more to learn. And so far that's been, I think, I think really useful in terms of exploring a conversation that's so big is let's start with I'm one drop in the bucket and here's a contribution that I have, which is the book. Well, that makes total sense, especially when you're working with people. And and so so I have no no issue with that. I mean, that that, that sounds completely logical to me. You know, I, I know from the book that you have a Christian background. In the book of Genesis, in the 12th chapter of Genesis, in the first verse of the 12th chapter of Genesis, I sound like a preacher. Okay. Abraham and Sarah are called by God to take leave of everything they know. I, the, the Bible says they, they should leave their nationality, their ethnicity, their parents, and they're going to go to a place that God's going to show them, but there's no map. And so they have nowhere, they have no idea where they're going. I mean, you could, to me, and from mystical commentaries on the passage, the idea is that they're leaving their, what you just called their default reality, where they're identified by gender, by sexuality, by ethnicity, and, and all of that. And they're going to leave that reality. They're going to some other state. And the way they know they've gone there, it says in the third verse, is they become a blessing to all the families of the earth. And it, it the way oh. it's written, it, it implies not just human families, but all the families, so, you know, animal, vegetable, mineral, that somehow they yeah. live as a blessing to all life. And my sense is from my meditation practice that you can slip out of the default reality, but not into another named self, into some other universal consciousness. And when you come yeah. back, you come back more and more attuned to being that blessing. And I'm wondering if that's been your experience, just as a, just personally, not, not in your work with other, with communities or other people. It does resonate in many ways. For me, I know one piece I spoke about with regards to my personal experience was my first, my first really big psychedelic experience, which was this journey with mushrooms in a treehouse in 2016. And one thing that I found through that experience was what had been described to me before by other people who had, you know, sat in various ceremonies and experienced altered states, which was kind of what you referred to as unity consciousness. And it was the place beyond. Really, there's there's no there's no words that I think are sufficient to describe it. That's why people say, you know, it's just ineffable if if you've experienced it, whether through like you said, meditation practices or other means, it's very hard to describe when you sort of come back into your body in this way. But I do believe that the insights and the what I sort of view as like the wider perspective and sometimes a really, really wide, you know, cosmic scale perspective that that can be accessed in these sort of expanded states in a 
ideal scenario, those insights do transfer into how we live in our most ordinary moments of our lives and how we navigate the world. And I think that that really is one of the great hopes of psychedelics is not just personal healing on the individual level, but what could understanding our place in the greater world that we're a part of and our relationships, like you say, to all living beings, what could that reconnecting with our interdependence mean for the way that we live and for treading more lightly on this earth and for moving with more compassion and yes, our family systems and local communities and also just in how we think about what we're doing with our life, with this precious time we have on earth. And that is a hope that I still have, even though I think there's a lot of caution that needs to be taken with psychedelics. I think that there's a lot of ways they could be misused. I do, you know, at the heart of hearts, really hold that hope. And that's really why I've committed so much of my time and energy to helping people kind of navigate safely through these altered states. Yeah, makes makes total sense. I mean, the my sense of it is the less you are the egoic self, the more you are this this greater self. And the healing that happens is is never personal. It's alone. It's always interpersonal. It's always global. Yeah. You can't help it. Yeah. So here's here's the reason why, and this is sort of I don't know if this is I don't know what this is, so I won't prejudge it. But the reason why I know you've touched that is because the second time in my Spanish is horrendous, it's non-existent. But, you know, I was reading that line, I'm a queer, cisgendered, able-bodied, light-skinned. How do you pronounce it? So how would you say it? Chicana, right? So the first time I said it right, but the second time I mispronounced it totally. So what I said instead of Chicana, I don't know if you heard it, but I said Chiquina. So Shekinah is a Hebrew word. It means the divine feminine. It's the mm-hmm. it's the presence of the divine embodied as feminine energy or something. So I think this is totally Freudian BS, but so my my assumption was hearing your voice, I sensed this deep connection to the divine. And so I mispronounced the whole word and I said, Oh, you are <laughs> a queer, cisgendered, able bodied, light skinned manifestation of the divine mother. That's why I'm so blessed to talk with you. So you can well, thank you. You can, you can take that <laughs> any way you want. I received uh, that. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's that's my gift to you in this podcast. <laughs> in in the book you write about you know, I mentioned it earlier, you, you grew up in a Christian household or Christian faith, but eventually, I like the way you put it, you said that your belief system or the logic of your the belief system or the Christian belief system started to unravel. And I don't think I've heard anyone put it just that way, unraveling. And I had this image of like a sweater that you would wear, and then you notice the threads are just unraveling, leaving you you know, without that extra skin. So so tell us a little bit about this unraveling. Yeah, well, you know, I think it was a very gradual unraveling. And that was in large part because I had and I continue to have so much love for the people who raised me, not only my family, but really many families in the church I was a part of. And after that, the the pastors and mentors that I had on through college. 
And so the attachments that I had were not only to the tenets of the belief system, which for me was in a more specific context, Pentecostal Christianity and really a fundamentalist sort of branch of that. It wasn't just a loyalty to those beliefs specifically. It was to the entire community, which had fostered those belief systems for me. And so as I grew and I started to be exposed to people who had entirely different lives and faith traditions and ways of thinking about their purpose in the world, it really started to challenge some things that I had never questioned before as a young person. And alongside that was also my knowledge of my own queerness, which you know, at the beginning was just a crush on someone I played rugby with and then really became, oh, this isn't just a crush. This is actually a part of, of who I am that's not going anywhere and that I'm not going to be able to repress forever. This is actually important to me. And so I think as I gave myself permission to be really curious and permission to, as I see it, sort of peer over the edge of the fences that had been put up around me around, here's the the thoughts that you think, and here are the unthinkable thoughts, which are in the church context, doubts about the Bible and the spiritual text, you know, doubts about the belief system as a whole. I gave myself permission to peer over, not with an agenda of departing, but just with a commitment to spiritual and intellectual integrity and a sort of, I feel courage that was wherever I land, I will at least know that I am having honest inquiry and exploration And I have to trust that that inner wisdom in me is going to lead me somewhere that is healthy and that that is connected to for me. I say that with with little T truth. (laughs) You know, I don't have a monopoly on truth. Far from it. Okay. How does your experience with plant-based medicine, with psychedelics, how does that draw on doubt and feed honest inquiry? You know, again, I have no experience with it, but I guess I'm imagining that has some parallel to contemplative practice. And in my meditation, I I find that meditation encourages doubt. The Buddha said, don't believe anything because some wise person told you or because you read it in a book or, you know, all, he gives you all this, these things because you only believe in something because you've tested it and it makes sense to you. And it's, it, it's, it leads to behaviors that are wise and compassionate and, and good. And you often have to doubt things that people are telling you just because it's tradition or just because it's in a sacred text. When you're experimenting with psychedelics and plant-based medicine, does that increase your capacity to doubt in service to honest inquiry? Well, I think what you just described really resonates and really translates, which is anytime you can get beyond your sort of grooves of habitual thinking, which we all have. I think that that's an important part of navigating the world with some sense of, you know, shared reality is we have these thought patterns that form for a reason and they're often there to protect us or to help us navigate and understand the world. What I have found is that the sense of openness that often is associated with psychedelics, and I would include with that not just the sort of traditional psychedelics, but also MDMA, which is a very sort of heart-opening, curiosity-opening substance, and others that are starting to emerge. The brain scans and studies they're doing reflect the anecdotal experience that gets repeated again and again, which is 
there is a more of a temporary opening where ideas and thoughts that may have been the unthinkable thoughts or the the scary places to go hold so much of a charge. There's almost this ability to connect more with the watcher, you know, for those who have a contemplative practice to sort of get beyond the narrative and the charge attached to certain ideas and just to look at them and kind of explore them and tinker with them from a lot of sides and even just marvel and wonder without jumping to making meaning of it. And I I really do feel that that's one of the most important things we can do, especially now that so much, you know, as you've shared, even the beginning of my book, I, sh- I begin with, this is my identity in this 3D world. So much of our lives is connected to our identities and there are things we have to hold on to loosely and find a way to again and again, hold on to what's really precious and valuable and then try and, you know, let go of as much attachment as we can and come back again to, okay, are the things that I was so closely attached to still the things that I really want to, or are there things that I could let go? So I think that's really the the practice. Tell us more about not jumping into meaning making. It sounds like there's a space between what you're experiencing feeling physically, emotionally, spiritually, and then an urge to, oh, let me just fit this into a category I already understand. Yes, exactly. And I can share, you know, in my experience as a psychedelic journeyer and also in holding space for loved ones when I've been the the sober one and I'll, I'll protect the space for them to have their journeys. One thing that I have observed in myself and others is even while in the midst of an expanded state, it's possible to start saying, oh, I'm seeing this or I'm having this memory and to start commentating in a way that is trying to draw the conclusions out in real time. And one thing that I've learned for myself and I really encourage people to do is often it's like less less talking. So we're not engaging the, the language parts of the mind and to come back to the senses. Can you come back to feeling and just noticing and in some ways having a communion with this experience that's happening because there's so much insight that can come through other senses that we have time later to make meaning. And often it's going to take days, weeks, months, maybe years to really continue weaving that thread of the insights that were gained. And so sometimes I think it can actually be a limitation if we jump too soon to thinking we know what it means or, or this is about my my father, or this is about an early life experience I had, for example, you know, those things can sort of remove a lot of the nuance and the, and the deeper layers of understanding that might come if you remain in that curious space. People say the same thing when you're doing dream work. Don't jump to a conclusion about, about what it means. So what I'm curious about, Rebecca, is how you work with the experience after the experience has passed. So it seems to me it's something like, or I'm, you know, it seems to me like I know, but I'm projecting that it's something like dream work. So in dream work, you try to create, you either write the dream down, but one of the things you can do in dream work is to create a collage. So you create, all, you, you take all these visual images. I've taken them from magazines, from different sources. You put them on a printed, you put them on a page and you have this visual representation of what the dream was. Not a literal representation, but just some 
archetypal representation. And when I look at it, it triggers the deeper meaning of the dream, though it doesn't reproduce the dream itself, so that I can work with that deeper archetypal meaning. So I'm wondering, when you work with the experience that you've had under the influence of psychedelics of what, or whatever it is you're using, how you do that? Do you do something similar to dream work? What's your technique? Yeah. So one thing that will get referenced a lot of times when people talk about psychedelic healing is the the process of integration. And I really hear that being what you're describing here, which is how do you how do you weave worlds and sort of take the the insights and the experiences that you had and and bring them into your daily life in a meaningful way. So one of the first things that we do, at least in a more structured environment, like a psychedelic therapy environment, is often the facilitator will take notes for the person who's having the journey. And that's so that you have something to refer back to later once you start the meaning-making process, which may be not only hours, but days and weeks later and then on, on into the future. Uh, so in that debrief, you can kind of revisit some of that imagery and in fact, I have friends who are trained therapists who work with ketamine, which is another um, psychedelic that's used in therapy often. And I have actually my climbing partner is an art therapist. So a lot of what they do is specifically collage. But that's just one example of the different modalities that are often promoted as non-linear, non, doesn't, it's nothing against writing, but sort of non-language based ways of settling these powerful experiences into oneself. So for example, time in nature, just really communing with the natural world is one. Movement practices like dance, yoga, contact improv, art, of course, and then community, really finding people with whom there's a shared language. Often it's people, it could be loved ones or a psychedelic integration group at a local center where you can talk about experiences you've had and continue to kind of peel back the layers of of your learnings. So I think, you know, people often talk about how important preparation is and the setting in which you have an experience. But I think equally as important, if not more so, is the care that comes afterwards and really setting up your life so that you have the space and time for those practices. If you don't carve it out ahead of time, it's it's hard to guarantee you'll have it. But it just the importance cannot be overstated. Yeah, makes total sense to move outside that linear written frame because it's not a linear experience uh, from what I gather from what you've said so far and, and from your book. We're, we're running out of time and I just want to focus on one last thing that you wrote in the book that just, I don't know, triggered me maybe. And, and that's your concept of psychedelic evangelism because I know I grew up with Timothy Leary and the, the, the mess that he made out of legitimate research and use of, uh, of, of LSD and, and, and psychedelic research in general. And, I mean, he set the whole thing back decades, I, I think. And, and part of his problem, and I'm you know, guessing, but part of his problem was he didn't, he didn't root what he was doing the way you do in a native context, in a plant-based medicine community. He was just doing this as if he had discovered something new, which this is ancient. It, it isn't new. 
So I'd like to know what you, you know, how, how you understand this psychedelic, your work as a psychedelic evangelist, if you see yourself that way. What's your hope? And, and well, you can end with this, really. What's your hope for Psychedelic Revolution 2.0? Let me start with the first piece. I do not identify as a psychedelic evangelist, and I'll tell you why. When I mention that in my book, it's really a sort of a point of caution, which is like the Timothy Learys of the world, there's been many who have come after who have had this attitude, which is, I had these big insights and, oh, if we could just put LSD in the water, then the world would awaken and we would achieve unity consciousness and world peace. And I actually think that that is an extremely risky, if not harmful space to be operating from for the reasons we've discussed here today. And, and really, I guess if I were to come up with a different term, though this may be minimizing, I would say I'm a psychedelic enthusiast. And I don't believe that psychedelics are going to be the thing that saves humanity. And I think I need to say that because often, you know, when you work in this field, that's almost implied. So I would say that my vision for psychedelic medicines and plant medicines being integrated into our world in a meaningful way, psychedelic resurgence 2.0, would be that they are a complementary and a supportive modality that work in harmony with so many other practices that have also been nurtured and are, are really coming back in these times due to their need. You know, it's it is things like contemplative practice, land tending, returning to community outside of social media and our cell phones. You know, a lot of things around food justice and, and tending to just even supply chains and being intentional with how we consume or don't consume on this planet. I think that all those pieces are very harmonious, actually. And I don't think that one can exist in a vacuum without the others. So my dream would be that we get to a place where psychedelics are kind of no big deal it, because they've been so normalized and because the public has such a handle on how, how to approach them with integrity and with care. And maybe that's a boring answer, but but no, I no, think that's, that's a, a safe well, vision. It's your answer. It's a good answer. And we will use that as our final word on <laughs> uh, the podcast today. So our guest today, Rebecca Martinez, is a psychedelic enthusiast <laughs> and author of Whole Medicine, A Guide to Ethics and Harm Reduction for Psychedelic Therapy and plant medicine communities. The book is featured in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about Rebecca's work at her website, alma.org. Alma is A-L-M-A, -A, all one word, almatraining.org. Rebecca, thanks for speaking with us on the Spirituality and Health podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Mine too. Spirituality Health Podcast with Rabbi Rami is produced by Ezra Baker Trupiano, and our executive producer is Brenna Lilly. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. And if you're not already a subscriber to Spirituality Health Magazine, please become one at spiritualityhealth.com. From everybody at Spirituality Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.